I'm grateful to be with you this morning. Uh, those of you who are regularly at Cherrydale, those of you who are visiting from out of town or from in town, we're grateful that you're here, grateful to worship with you. We're preaching through the book of Ruth, finishing this morning, uh, what, what Bridget just read for you. So let me pray, and then let's turn to the Lord's Word in Ruth chapter 4. Father, we, are, we rejoice this morning knowing that our, our relationship with you depends fully on Christ, which has freed us up for a kind of righteousness, a kind of pursuit of you that simply delights your heart. We have no need to pursue you in order to be accepted by you. That acceptance we embrace through the work of Christ. I pray that you would help us to see this morning in a new way, in a fresh way, in an encouraging way, your creativity and power to bring forth a redeemer for your people. This was not something we could do in our own strength. This was something that you needed to do. And so I pray that you would strengthen us, your people, by your word. I pray for friends this morning, for children who have not yet placed their faith in Christ. I pray that you would minister to them this morning. Help them to see your power. Help them to see your love. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> Christmas is a time of sharp contrasts, isn't it? We have darkness and light. We have silence and we have singing. We have waiting and we have realizing. And it's also a time where happiness and grief, Mitchell mentioned this earlier, happiness and grief seem to run side by side with a particular kind of intensity. We're really grieved and we're really happy in a way that comes with particular intensity at this time of the year. And often the happiness and the grief are ping-ponging back and forth inside of our hearts at the same time. We're moving back and forth between the points of pain and the points of happiness. We feel the happiness of gathering with others alongside the disappointment of unreconciled relationships. They come at the same time. We feel the decadence of feasting and gifts alongside the strain of very real financial hardships. We feel the happiness of enjoying these moments alongside other people we loved, right alongside the grief over those lost to sickness and death. We acutely at Christmas feel our losses, our unmet desires, our unanswered prayers amidst all the carols and the feasting and the relationships. And it's in the still moments, in the quiet moments, late at night, in the middle of the night, early in the morning, when we're nagged by all of the background fears and griefs and various points of pain. Now, I realize that is not a particularly encouraging Christmas Eve morning sermon introduction, but I think that being direct about the sharp contrast of emotions we feel at Christmas is helpful. I think it's helpful for two reasons. Christmas's pain, the points of pain that we think about this time of the year, they instruct us, they teach us that this world is not our final home. When you have that twinge of sadness or disappointment, it's a reminder in our hearts that this world is not home. We are sojourners, we are pilgrims, we are headed home, but we are not yet home. But Christmas also, in, its, in the Christmas happinesses, they can also help us to taste 
what we will feel and feast on forevermore. So the pain points remind us we're not home, but even the points of happiness, we're tasting what we will feast on in eternity. All the joys of Christmas remind us that there is something better and lasting, not fleeting, that is waiting for us. Now, how does Christmas do this? How does Christmas instruct us in these ways? Because at Christmas, we are stopping to recognize what Christ came to do. He came to abolish death, and He came to deliver eternal life. This is what His first coming inaugurated and brought into being. And Jesus will, at His second coming, complete that which He started. We will be redeemed. And that is not just saved from our sins. Jesus will at that time, at His future coming, restore creation, resurrect our bodies, defeat our sin nature, abolish sin and death and Satan forever, and usher us into His presence. Salvation is so much more than the reality that Christ forgives sins. He does. But there is more that Christ will do at His second coming. This morning we come to the resolution of Ruth. And by my count, ten times the word redeem is used in this chapter. And what we see is that God is working to redeem Naomi and Ruth, not just from temporary shortcomings and obstacles, not just the physical obstacles that they're facing in this life. This is not just about bringing them to a happy ending. That's not what Ruth 4 is teaching us. We will see that God is at work to resolve and to redeem the eternal spiritual obstacles that Ruth and Naomi and Boaz and everyone in the story are facing. God helps us see in this chapter that the happy ending we're looking for is still coming in the future. And so the main idea this morning is this, rejoice, God has not left us without a redeemer. He is at work redeeming intimately in our lives and massively in human history. So let's look at this story. Scene 1, verses 1 through 12, Boaz secures redemption. Now, we are at the city gate in the city of Bethlehem a thousand years before Christ is born. And it's first thing in the morning. While Ruth left the threshing floor where we were last week, the place where wheat is threshed and winnowed, while she heads home to Naomi at dawn, Boaz goes to the city gate of Bethlehem. Look at verses 1 and 2 that Bridget read for us. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had just spoken, came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And Boaz took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Naomi reassures Ruth at the very end of Ruth chapter 3 that Boaz will not rest until he settled the matter today. And she was right. Boaz leaves the threshing floor where he spent the night, and at dawn he makes his way to the city gate of Bethlehem. The city gate was a public place for official business and official conversations, and it's here that Boaz takes his seat. This is where most of the town is moving in and out of the city in the early morning. It's public and it's noticeable. And behold, the Redeemer that he had just mentioned to Ruth the night before just happens to walk by. Another just-so-happens moment in the book of Ruth. Who should happen to walk by than the relative that Boaz had just mentioned to Ruth? 
Jesus tells us that no bird falls to the ground apart from the will of the Father. He's teaching us that God is intimately concerned with the details of our lives. If even a bird doesn't fall to the ground without the knowledge and the will of the Father, then how much more so human beings created in His image. God is intimately at work in our lives, counting the hairs of our heads, knowing the places where we'll sit, knowing the number of days that we will walk the earth. And Boaz standing in the city is evident. It's evident by their responsiveness to his exhortations that they sit down. His worthy character in Bethlehem compels the city to stop and to listen. First, he flags down the man, the relative, and he says, turn aside, friends, sit down. The narrator doesn't tell us the name of this particular relative. And the word translated in most of your English versions as friend is not meant to communicate intimacy. Sinclair Ferguson says that the word in Hebrew means something more like, hey, so-and-so, which some of your versions probably have. It's as if Boaz said, over here, buddy, or hey, pal, sit down. And he sits down. And by doing it this way, Boaz and the narrator seem to encourage the reader to see that this is not the guy to follow. This is not the example to follow. And next, Boaz takes 10 of the elders of the city who serve as judges in Bethlehem, and he tells them to sit down, and so they sit down. Boaz, the worthy man, is clearly on a mission this morning, and everyone at the city gate pauses to see what he has in mind. Look at verse 3. Then Boaz said to the Redeemer, to his closer relative to Naomi, he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. Naomi's dead husband is named Elimelech. And Elimelech died along with his two sons out of Israel in the land of Moab. And we learned this morning, Boaz tells the people, tells the Redeemer that Naomi needs to sell a parcel of land that belonged to Elimelech. She probably is selling this in order to live off the proceeds. And here's the problem. Because if a close family member doesn't purchase the land that Naomi needs to sell, then that land will go outside the family clan. The land belonging to Elimelech's family clan is in danger of being sold outside the family clan. And this isn't a big deal to us, but it was a huge deal to Israel at this time. God had given, as a gift, specific land to specific people specific families. And the land was meant to stay with that specific family and be passed down to that family's next generation. And this is one of the responsibilities that we've seen that God gave to a family or kinsman, redeemer, or guardian, a close family relative whose job it was to ensure justice for a family member who was at risk of being mistreated or in some way a victim of injustice. And so they would buy land that was lost. They would redeem a family member who had been sold into slavery. They would ensure justice for a murdered family member. They would receive money on behalf of the dead family member. And this was a beautiful way that God provided, a way that God designed for people to be protected in a vulnerable moment of their life. In the family redeemer, the kinsman redeemer laws, God's heart is on display. He cares about people vulnerable in these moments. Look at verse 4. Boaz continues, so I thought I would tell you of it, tell you that she's selling this land and say to you, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. 
If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know. For there is no one beside you to redeem it. There is no one closer to you to redeem it. And I come after you. And the man said, I will redeem it. Now, Boaz intentionally puts this man on the spot. The pressure's up. The elders have gathered. The people are there assembled at the city gate. And Boaz is not wasting any time. In front of the elders of my people and in front of the people sitting here, if you will redeem this land, then redeem it. There's no one besides you. There's no one closer in line than you. And I come after you. Boaz is subtly revealing his intention. If you don't redeem the land, then I will redeem the land. Now, I suspect that Boaz is not surprised that the man has agreed to redeem the land. I think Boaz anticipated this response. I think Boaz has been painting intentionally this man into the corner so that he might be put on display. He is highlighting for all the witnesses what this man is willing to do and what he's not willing to do. Look at verse 5. Then Boaz said to the man, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order that, so that, for the purpose of, that you might perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Boaz is moving from one aspect of God's law, the laws that pertain to the kinsman family redeemer that we've already looked at. He's moving to a second aspect of God's law, and that is leveret marriage. The kinsman redeemer laws, those guardian laws, are concerned with justice and property for the family clan. Leveret marriage is concerned about something that's related but different. Leveret marriage laws are concerned with lineage. It's concerned with heirs. It's concerned with a descendant. The leveret marriage laws gave the childless widow an opportunity to request that her dead husband's brother might provide an heir on behalf of her and the dead man. And the child would specifically inherit the dead man's property, not the brother's property, but the dead man's property and his name so that his name and land would be perpetuated in all of Israel. And I realize we're neck deep in Israelite family law, but it's the background of what's happening at the city gate in Bethlehem. This is what is concerning Boaz and this other man. And Boaz is challenging the man to do this. In verse 5, perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Boaz is saying to this man, in other words, you're not just receiving property so that you can increase your own wealth. I am calling you to selfless, loving sacrifice on behalf of Naomi and Ruth and their future inheritance. Yes, you will acquire property, but you also acquire the widow Ruth. And your responsibility is to marry Ruth and to pray for a child who will bear Elimelech's name and inherit Elimelech's property. So the man is being asked to bear a cost, buy the land, redeem the land, but to let this future child in Elimelech and Naomi and Ruth's name inherit and manage all that that land produces. And by doing this, he will let Elimelech's lineage continue, which we'll see in a moment why God is so concerned with lineage among his people Israel. I imagine the elders in the crowd turn from Boaz to this man wondering at his response. Look at verse 6. 
Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself. And here's his reason. Lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. We may not know everything that's in this man's heart, but his self-interest is certainly on display. The reason he gives, not just to Boaz, but to the elders and to the people assembled is, I don't want to impair my own inheritance. There is something here, even if we don't understand everything that's happening, there is something here where this man realizes, in the first case, I stand to gain something. In the second case, I will impair my own inheritance. This is a nameless figure that we are meant to say, this is not the example to follow. Now, in verses, look at verse 7 and 8. Now, this was the custom. Here's the parenthetical statement, the explanation by the narrator of Ruth. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he withdrew his sandal. And so this one sandaled Redeemer probably slinks away from the city gate and the spotlight moves back to Boaz. Look at verse 9 and 10. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day. Listen to him, take charge. You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belong to Elimelech and all that belong to his sons, Chilion and Mahlon. And Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Mahlon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Boaz turns to the crowd that's assembled and he clinches the deal. I'm buying the land and here's why I'm buying it. I'm acquiring Ruth as my wife and here's why. My intention is to make sure that this land stays in the name of Naomi, stays in Naomi and Elimelech and her son's lineage. In verses 11 through 12, the crowd that's assembled understands exactly what's happened. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. The first blessing that the crowd pronounces on Boaz is, may your house grow. May it be established like the first generation of Israelites, like Rachel and Leah eight generations ago. Secondly, may you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. May you be true to your character. May you act with integrity in this matter. May you follow through on the public commitments you made to us today. Will you act like a worthy man? Will you follow through on your word? And then finally, and most strangely, verse 12, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this woman. The third blessing from the people is that their house might be like the house of Perez. This one is stranger because it's, this story is a tragic attempt, misattempt, at leveret marriage. But in God's grace, even though six generations ago it was a bit botched, but God in His grace leads to the birth of a son, Perez a leader in Israel, and six generations before Boaz. And this is a reminder of how God works 
through human sin for his purposes. And the people of Bethlehem want to connect what's happening here to what happened then. Don't resent the cost of righteousness. Don't resent the cost of obedience. Boaz willingly assumes a cost to do the right thing, to honor God, and to love the people around him well. Boaz and Ruth also are showing the people of Bethlehem what God's love looks like, what form God's committed steadfast faithful love takes. You are probably not being asked to purchase land on behalf of an Israelite widow. But what are the points of obedience that God is calling you to? This relative moved away from the cost of obedience because it was too costly. Trust God to balance the scales in the end. Bear the apparent costs of righteousness for the sake of love of others, for the sake of love of neighbor, and for the sake of faithfulness to God. If God is calling you to a, to a point of obedience this morning, then assume the cost. It is always worth the cost. That's scene one. Scene two, probably nine months later, in the home of Boaz and Ruth. And in this section, verses 13 to 22, Ruth delivers the son, and we find out who this son is. Look at verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Boaz and Ruth marry, and the Lord allows Ruth to conceive a child, and she delivers a son. And we'd be remiss if we didn't remember, take a minute to remember where we've been in this story. Because remember in chapter 1 how bleak and dark the prospects were for Naomi and Ruth. Naomi's husband and two sons, only sons, die in the city, in the land of Moab. And they leave behind three widows and there is no easy way. There is no clear path to provision and rest and security. She is too old to bear children for herself. And now... Through the Lord's incredible sovereign hand, a son now cries in their home. And this astounding provision is not lost on the women of Bethlehem. Listen to verses 14 and 15. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him today. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. Somehow stating it in the negative makes it more powerful. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. Remember, it was Naomi who said in chapter 1, The Lord has brought me back empty. I went out full from Bethlehem and I came back empty and the Lord has done it. God has testified against me, she says to the people of Bethlehem. The Almighty has brought calamity upon me. But now the Lord has not only satisfied her temporary hunger, but he has given her an heir permanently in her home. And the wording here seems to indicate vagueness on who exactly the Redeemer is. Is it Boaz? Is it the child born to Boaz? 
or is it Ruth? It really doesn't matter. All three of them seem to be in mind, and all three of them are serving together as the Redeemer, as the function of redeeming what was broken and seemed completely hopeless and dark. Because Ruth the Moabite, Naomi, she's worth more to you than seven sons would have been. Her loyalty and faithfulness and committed love and courage and hard work, God has used them for your provision. Now look at verses 16 and 17. Then Naomi took the child and laid the child on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born, not to Ruth, a son has been born to Naomi. And they named the son Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. She lays the child on her lap and becomes the child's nurse which is a way to reinforce what we've already seen, that Naomi's grandson, Obed, is seen as God's gift to her. And then with a symbol clash, the narrator fasts forward the story. Obed would become the father of Jesse, and it's in Jesse's home that the future king of Israel would be anointed by the prophet Samuel. This is a mic drop moment for the narrator. This is his big reveal. Boaz will become the great-grandfather of David, the king of Israel. King David, who would be the near-term answer to Israel's longing for a king. Remember, they're in a generation that has no king in Israel, and everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. They're longing for a king, and God would provide the king through this obscure family in Bethlehem. But here's what we can't miss. Ruth chapter 4 is not an epic tale with a happy ending. That is not the purpose of Ruth chapter 4. It's not to give us this happy ending where he gets the girl and they have a baby and their lives go happily ever after. That's not the point. It is what happens, but it's not the point. The fundamental problem for Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz, their fundamental problem was not provision. Their greatest need was not a home. It was not in a child. Their need was miles deeper than that. Needs not even their kingly great-grandson David would be able to meet for them. The problem of Boaz, the problem of Ruth, the problem of Naomi is a sin problem. Sin that separated them from fellowship with God. They can marry and they can have a child, but their sin problem remains. That's why this story's ending is so electric. Boaz is not the answer to their need. This child is not the answer to their need. Not even King David would be the answer to their need. These only whisper and foreshadow about the Redeemer, the only Redeemer who could solve their fundamental problem. While God was working intimately in their lives, caring for them in the moments of their felt need, while He was doing that, He was also working massively in human history. While he is conducting a symphony in Bethlehem, in Ruth's life, in Boaz's life, and Naomi's life, conducting all these pieces to come together for their good, he's also orchestrating his massive redemptive purposes in history. That's the happy ending that this story points us to. Because it just so happened that through this obscure family, the Redeemer would come the world's savior, 
a thousand years later to another young woman, a virgin this time, who has miraculously conceived. And it just so happened that God would use a Roman emperor who would initiate a census. And it just so happened that this census would bring this young virgin 90 miles to the same city of Bethlehem. Because it just so happened that Mary was engaged to a man who just so happened to be of the house and lineage of David. And it was in Bethlehem that Mary wrapped her newborn son in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. And it was in the fields just outside of Bethlehem that an angel appeared to a group of shepherds. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, Bethlehem, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And it just so happened that this baby would be named Jesus because that's what the angel told Mary nine months before. And behold, you will conceive Mary and in your womb and you will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. God is at work intimately in the lives of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. He cares about them. He cares about their points of pain. He cares about what's happening in their hearts. And he acts on their behalf. He redeems. But God is doing so much more than that. In human history, he is orchestrating a story, a story that began thousands and thousands of years ago, and God in his power and wisdom and love is carrying out his plans in history even now. Church family and friends, God has not left us without a Redeemer. This day, God has not left us without a Redeemer. In every obstacle, every trial, every hardship, in every persecution and opposition and pain point, I don't care what it is. God has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And in the Christmas pains and in the Christmas happinesses, God is at work. God has not left us without a Redeemer. God is always a deliverer and redeemer of his people. And the provision and the protection that Naomi and Ruth experienced, you can expect that too. But not necessarily in the way that you hope. And not necessarily in the time that you hoped. But God has not left us this day without a Redeemer. We may be hopeless like Ruth and Naomi were in chapter 1 of this story. Where the circumstances of our life seem bleak and dark. We may be blind. Blind to God's purposes like Ruth and Naomi were in chapter 2. We cannot see what God is doing at all. We may be waiting like Ruth and Naomi were waiting in chapter 3, hoping upon hope that God will act to preserve and redeem. Or we may be rejoicing, like Ruth and Naomi in chapter 4, beside ourselves over God's redemption of us. Whether hopeless or blind or waiting or rejoicing, God has not left us this day without a Redeemer. This story began for us with two widowed women in a foreign land 
with no prospects for provision, longing for a place of security and rest. And they get this in a temporary way in chapter 4. But Ruth and Naomi and you and me are in need of a deeper rest, an eternal home, a permanent redeemer, a permanent redemption. Jesus, our redeemer, broke into creation. He broke into the darkness of sin and struggle and death as the light of the world. He came as the great sunrise on high to bring in light where there was only darkness, to chase away the dark cloud that had enveloped God's creation. And he will come a second time. And when he comes the second time, we will experience the fullness of that redemption. Here's Micah chapter 5 to close us. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, remember the blessing they pronounced on Boaz. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you, from you, shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his people, the flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for he shall be great to the very ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Rejoice. God has not left you this day without a Redeemer. Rejoice. Our Redeemer has come. Rejoice. Our Redeemer will come again. Father, we look to you this morning with awe over what you are able to accomplish in history. There is no one who can hold your hand. There is no one who can stay your hand. There is no one who can slow your purposes. You are working towards your ends in the intimate places of our lives and circumstances. You're there. And in the massive scope of human history, you are working to redeem and restore. So I pray this Christmas you would fill our hearts with awe, that you would cause us to rejoice over our redemption. Lord Jesus, what a gift. Holy Spirit, come and strengthen us according to your word as we sing together. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.